Progressive Rugby League. G'day all, how you doing? You know, I, John O'Duncan, am not a fan of the West Tigers, but I'm here to tell you I'm a big fan of the West Tigers. I can't explain. I'm not living and dying by their on or off field exploits. I don't really care. I just wish them well. Look, let's face it, the West Tigers are a bit ramshackle. They're a bit bits and pieces. They're a bit all over the shop. But you know what? Aren't we all? Most people see the cracks in the West Tigers, the unlikely pairing of Balmain and Western Suburbs, the inner west and the southwest, 50 miles and a couple of worldviews apart. But I reckon there's something about the West Tigers that's quintessentially Sydney. Because in Sydney, sometimes the only way is to try fake it till you make it. And that's how I see the West Tigers. They've been trying to fake it to make it since the turn of the century. And when it has come off, 2005, what? You can't help but thinking, well, good on you. The West Tigers as a concept is full of contradictions and crossed wires. This is not a good recipe when you're ensconced in the business of modern sport where single-minded focus and value propositions rule the day. But maybe that's why, despite all the struggles and missteps, the West Tigers are still kind of lovable. Because maybe, better than anyone else, they reflect us. Trying really hard to get ahead, failing a fair bit, putting on a brave face when it all seems impossible, but with the motor to just keep going. Because you know what? Things will turn. Bluster and self-deception, it's a combination that has served many well over history. And it's the Sydney I know and love. Friends, I've just finished reading a wonderful new novel called The Magpie Wing, which follows the lives of three junior Western Suburbs Magpies rugby league footballers, Walt, Helen and Duncan, as they grapple with adolescence and young adulthood, firstly in Sydney's sprawling southwest, and then within the tight confines, geographical and cultural, of inner Western Sydney. Rugby league starts to fade from focus as Walt, Helen and Duncan negotiate the jagged contours of urban living, but the game never fully recedes from their lives. In fact, in many ways, their experiences reflect the tensions that light the heart of the West Tigers. Bluster self-deception, the cultural divides between Southwest and inner Western Sydney, who or what to identify with, the yearning for attachment, Walt, Helen and Duncan personify, through their enigmatic paths, the quandary that makes the West Tigers so interesting and so relatable to the rest of us. But you know what? Maybe that's just me. It's probably better to get the thoughts of someone with some more skin in the game. Max Easton is a Western Suburbs magpie through and through, and author of the thoroughly excellent The Magpie Wing. It's a delight to have him along today to talk about changing times, the merits or otherwise of changing with said times, and the relationship between two disparate parts of Sydney that are really only regularly brought together through the strange existence of a motley but intriguing club called the West Tigers. Max Easton, welcome to the Progressive Rugby League Podcast. Thanks heaps for having me here, Jonah. I really appreciate it. No worries. Well, Max, congratulations on your debut novel. I uh, absolutely flew through it. Immense achievement and really just such a, a fabulous read. Max, the beginning of the book is set in Sydney's southwestern suburbs of the late 1990s. How would you describe the role Rugby League plays in the lives of our three main characters, Walt, Helen and Duncan, and their families at that time? Um, I'd say it's sort of, and not all of it is on the page, a lot of it is maybe, like I assume that you can kind of sense that it might be there, but I'd say it sort of is there in their routines and in the structure of their lives, like it being Liverpool, there being rugby league on the, probably the preview for the games on the, coming up on the weekends on the news, the father's running late from work, he probably dropped in the TAB to put a bet on the game and these sorts of aspects 
of their day-to-day lives down to like footy training Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday morning, later Sunday afternoon. So I guess the role that rugby league's playing in their lives is just kind of, I think it's something of, it's becoming their identity. Uh, it's sort of setting these commonalities between them and the people around them and their surrounds. Well, at least that was very much the intention. Mm. Yeah, it's kind of painting their lives, I suppose, or setting things in emotion maybe. Yeah. Now, Max, you, you grew up in that part of Sydney, the southwest. You played junior rugby league in the western suburbs district to a decent standard. It was clearly a big part of your upbringing. Now, early on in the book, you relate the time Tommy Rodonicus did the town crier thing on the back of a ute down the main drag of Campbelltown trying to drum up a crowd for that night's game against the Warriors. I remember seeing this on the news as a kid. Brilliant stuff. In the book, Helen and Walt's dad, Sam, is transfixed by this moment and answers Tommy's call. And it's an important moment of the book from which a chain of events eventually unfolds. In your experience as a resident in Magpie Territory at that time, did it feel like you were in Western Suburbs heartland? Was there a genuine connection between the team and the community or were people like Sam a bit of an anomaly in what was and is a sprawling part of Sydney? Because, you know, as we know, the Magpies made quite the bold move towards the southwestern edge of the Sydney sprawl not too long before that in the late 80s. Uh, so curious about your reflections there. Yeah, it's, I guess it's a bit of both because, you know, Liverpool is, you know, pretty famous for that top, you know, northeastern tip of the southwest of Sydney, really. Mm. You know, my dad was a Parramatta supporter and my pop was a Canary Bankstown supporter. And, you know, I was a Magpies junior. So when 95 and 96 around that time that Tommy was doing those promotional stunts, was probably... The only time that um, Campbelltown and Liverpool really, really started to embrace the Magpies because mm. they relocated from Lidcombe to, to there in 87. And, mm. you know, the restructuring of the junior districts sort of took a little time to come into place. But for me personally, you know, the Magpies had a really good ground game in the mid-90s. So, mm. you know, Cherry Master and Steve Georgialis came to my primary school and that was probably what, you know, made me an obsessive Magpies fan from about 93, 94. Mm. Yeah, as to like whether it was Heartland, Heartland, I don't think it was quite there just by virtue of the history of the area and mm. the presence of Parramatta and the Bulldogs really in that area for such a much longer time. Mm. Yeah, yeah, good point. Now, Max, the Magpie Wing is not a rugby league novel, uh, but rugby league is a key part of the book's essence. It's kind of in the story's veins, it seems. Why was it important for you that rugby league was a key thread for this story and for these characters? I mean, like, other than that, it's just kind of what I knew of the time. I think actually really, on that note, I guess it was sort of just honest to who they would be. If there were kids in Liverpool in the mid-90s, that's, you know, it's inescapable rugby league at that time. But as far as, like, how important it is to, like, keep that running through, I thought it was really interesting or illuminating and, like, kind of symbolic with what they did with their rugby league culture as they got older. Mm. You know, one character sort of hangs on to this 1978 sensibility, mm. even though he's a millennial, like into his adulthood. Mm. You know, another one, she kind of, you know, rugby league has been nothing but a bit of an inhibition to her own personal wants and needs, so she kind of walks away from it. Mm. And the other guy is sort of willing to use it if it suits him, if it benefits him and is willing to uh, abandon it if it's, you know, not in the right crowd sort of thing. Mm. And I think it's just true of rugby league and true of rugby league people and the way that it comes in and out of people's lives it does say a lot about you yeah absolutely it does reflect how rugby league weaves in and out of your life as you grow there's not many people who are obsessed from 
a young age to their deathbed uh, and obviously through adolescence other priorities come <laughs> come into into focus so yeah i thought that was really a great method that you used at, at rugby league as a thread now um as walt one of the the book's main characters starts to spend more time in the inner west he starts to notice that he's getting judged and patronized for being from his part of the city, the Southwest. And one moment that crystallizes that underlying feeling that he has is when he tries to get the rugby league grand final on the TV at a local bar. But his attempts are kind of just met with a blank stare. And it made me think about rugby league and where it fits in, in Sydney in the modern day. Obviously, it's the biggest football code in the city, working class origins, big footprint in the Western suburbs. But I'm curious about how you reflect on rugby league's place in modern day Sydney. Yeah, it's a really good question because I think it's sort of that scene of like Walt trying to watch the grand final at the bar is I think pretty common mm. to a lot of rugby league fans coming in the city. It was a scene that ended up making it into the book, but a guy chucking a hissy fit in the pub because they're playing AFL in the front bar of the Henson Park Hotel, <laughs> which is across the road from Newtown Town's home ground. Yeah, which is, is something that I did once when I first moved to the city from the suburbs, and it's something that. My friend Ravi has a story about it. My friend Joe has a story about it. I've done it. Just like absolute dismay. <laughs> I'm sure most listeners to this podcast would do. It's like, what is this? You know? <laughs> so, yeah, the place of the NRL and the TV in the Inner West pub versus the place of rugby league in Sydney, that's something that my friend Joe Buckmaster has sort of said to me in the past, like when I've had these sorts of discussions, is that it's kind of like sat me down and said, you know, rugby league is a game and the NRL is a brand. And you and I like rugby league. Just because the NRL isn't on TV doesn't mean rugby league isn't healthy in some form. Mm. And I'd say most listeners to PRL would have a lot of interest in New South Wales Cup or International Rugby League or second and third tier rugby league, the women's game, other versions of it, which all will always have a place in Sydney, even if the clubs within the NRL kind of come in and out of engagement with the people and start seeking out either middle-class fan bases or uh, abandon their region or embrace a different region or a different market. It's mm. sort of, it's kind of in and around Sydney as much as anything is. It's quite a conflicted city, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess it kind of reflects the uh, the decentralisation, perhaps the deconcentration of rugby league and of media and of communication. And I guess the reality is that you do go around certain parts of Sydney and it's no surprise anymore that you may not see a rugby league game on at a pub. There's nothing really you can do about it because the reality is that clientele of wherever you are are just not that interested. Although it is kind of like a, a bubbling along throughout in every part of the city, in some places it's just not that big. And I think for a lot of people outside of Sydney, they'd find that surprising, especially our international uh, listeners who think rugby league is in in the veins of the city, which it is, but it's not as all-encompassing as AFL is in Victoria and South Australia or as football is in most parts of the UK. And I think that's sort of what makes it special to me as well and mm. what gives, um, you know, like I do feel that there's this sort of identity around being a rugby league fan which comes from its history, which we'll get to later, but mm. there is some kind of form occasionally like when you find a person in Sydney who's also a fan of rugby league, you have this immediate moment of solidarity with them yeah. and like this piece of understanding, which sounds so silly because it's, you know, it's a sport or it's a game. Mm. But I, you know, I'm not so sure that that 
and I'm biased, but I'm not so sure that that's there if you're like a fan of the UFC or if you're a fan of the English Premier League soccer or something. It's kind of like, oh, so you're going to get all these things I'm about to complain about <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because you're a rugby league fan. Yeah, and it's especially true as you venture into different parts of your life. You know, when you're a kid, you know, you're, you're in your little bubble with people who are just like you and you, you love rugby league, they love rugby league, and it's it's all makes sense. Then you go and you start working maybe in the city and, and no one likes it. And then you you start going out into other parts of Sydney and, and you kind of look down upon if you're a rugby league fan. So yeah. these are all the things. That, and then you do uh, recognize someone in those sort of surrounds and you, and you like rugby league too. All, all of a sudden you really do make a, a connection. So yeah, you're absolutely right there. Max, what about the game's relationship with Western Sydney? Walt also kind of jokingly flirts with the idea of a Western Sydney separatist movement. This is a, a great part of the book. His point being that Western Sydney people are tired of being blamed for everything and tarred with a broad rush on the one hand, and then being appropriated for street cred when it suits people. Where does rugby league fit on this spectrum? There's obviously a close bond between rugby league and Western Sydney. Do you think rugby league remains a genuine part of the Western Sydney fabric in 2021, or is it becoming that character kind of dips into Western Sydney when it suits them and when it makes them look good? What, what are your thoughts there? Uh, that's really well put. I need to get you to blurb the book or something. <laughs> that was really good. So I the separatism section. But, yeah, no, I, I do think it is. It depends. Like, from the NRL's perspective, I think they use Western Sydney when they want to. But from Western Sydney's perspective, I think it is still a real part of the day-to-day life, keeping in mind that Western Sydney is, you know, four different cities. So mm. yeah, it's very, very true of Penrith, especially over the last couple of years, I think it's very true of Parramatta and that city with the new stadium. Hmm. It's very true of Belmore specifically. Okay. But then I think maybe it gets a bit muddier around areas of the southwest. You know, with the West Tigers sure. kind of spending less time at Campbelltown, I don't really sense it as much as part of the fabric of that end of Western Sydney. But, hmm. yeah, if that makes any sense at all. No, it absolutely does. And being someone who uh, myself now lives in the inner west uh that obviously not quite part of western sydney but it's not obviously not far away from belmore you could almost call belmore inner west the inner west you get the sense that rugby league is slipping away from the inner west or the inner west is slipping away from rugby league and it's being desperately held on to through things like the newtown jets and of course western suburbs magpies who now play out of lidcombe which you're involved with now max i'm not widely read enough to be a critic so I'm a bit sheepish about how I'm about to go about this question but bear with me and I did touch on it in my intro so I finished the book thinking wow this is such a great story in and of itself and it's such a a great reflection on the struggle many of us face finding our place in the world and the struggle lifelong in many cases to become comfortable in our own skin and it's a pretty raucous and sticky and smelly ride at times so it's thoroughly entertaining so I loved it from that perspective now Beyond that, um, and here you can let me know if this is just my rugby league brain imagining things. Beyond that, on another plane, it's kind of a thesis on the West Tigers and everything that makes it a complex, problematic, but lovable entity. So it's kind of like uh, George Orwell's Animal Farm, where on one level, it's a story about a power struggle between some pigs, and on another, it's a commentary about the pitfalls of communism. So and I should note right here that despite what I've just said and despite how the intro might have come across, this is not a book about the West Tigers. In fact, they're, they're barely mentioned, but I couldn't shake my feelings. So I guess my question is, has my imagination run away with me or is it a secret treatise on the quandary that is the West Tigers? 
I actually don't think it's so much of a stretch at all. I didn't mean for it to be that way, but it was more on reflection that it did kind of start to appear in certain ways. Mm. I'd say, because, you know, a lot of it is about a connection between traditional rugby league sensibility, working class sensibility, which is often tied to Western suburbs, magpies, mm. and their place within the rugby league community. And, you know, my editor thought of it when he was reading that section to call it the magpie wing, mm. which is not anatomical. It's like the magpie wing of Sydney. Yeah. Or, you know, the separatist sort of yeah. thing. But then I found myself referring to, like, internal West Tigers discussions as the magpie wing argument <laughs> and the Balmain wing argument and the West Tigers wing argument, yeah. the unity argument, you know. So I think it really is allegorical of that, even though it was meant to be a bit more, like, about, say, the left wing of the ALP or where underground music sits into the music industry. Or, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And... and you know, I found myself like through writing the book and going through edits, like, wow, that's actually really appropriate of News Story X. Yeah. You know, famously, it was like, I think it was Paul Kent or Rothfield, one of those sort of zealots, <laughs> talking about how nobody wants to live in Campbelltown, so West Tigers will never move there. Mm. And I got so fucking offended. Sorry. I got <laughs> so right. offended by that <laughs> because, you know, I so grew up there. Yeah. So, I mean, that sort of element of it, yeah, is definitely there. Yeah, well, I guess uh, let's dig into that further. I kind of alluded to it before. You just alluded to it previously as well. But yeah, the book does divide its time between the southwestern suburbs of Sydney, that ever-broadening sprawl, and the at times uh, claustrophobic inner west, particularly in what you might consider quote-unquote progressive circles. This is a really important contrast in the book. And, uh, you know, obviously these areas are in many ways, you know, poles apart politically, culturally some ways, and the characters in the book, they, they feel the bumpiness in that relationship. It affects them tangibly as they kind of evolve as people. And yet the interesting thing is that the West Tigers try to straddle these differences. It obviously wasn't part of the grand plan. Balmain and West just kind of ended up together when the music stopped on Rugby League's post-Super League War rationalisation dance. But since then, they've been faced with what seems a pretty tricky task. And from the Perspective of an old Magpies fan, has this undertaking worked for the community of southwestern Sydney around Campbelltown, Liverpool? Obviously, we could talk about their poor on-field performances, but do you feel West Tigers, you know, feel like they are the region's team to an extent that it approaches how the region felt about the Magpies, or is it you kind of mentioned before that it's kind of slipping away? Yeah, and I sort of have like mixed opinions about that because you know I, I don't really feel like it is representing, certainly isn't re- representing the Southwest in any obvious way, but I think it could. And I think one of the real missing elements of the West Tigers is all these little historical factors which get walked over. You know, Concord is all of a sudden treated as a Leichhardt mm. issue or about Main Tigers place. That Concord Oval is where West Magpie's first home ground was at St Luke's Oval. So there is this continuity and this sort of like corridor and like this fuzzy boundary between Campbelltown, Liverpool, Lidcombe, Interlakart, the Inner West LGA and mm. the Cumberland area and the Liverpool Campbelltown area, which is real really possible to tie into. Mm. But yeah, I think it's just for me it's not quite successful yet, but there are all these steps every year you get a little glimmer of hope that <laughs> you know, maybe one more game will be played at Campbelltown or Yeah. Yeah. So something will ingratiate the community and I think there are things happening more in the junior level where that's happening. But um, yeah. yeah, it's hard. It's hard for them because there's so many interests. There are so many, yeah, there's so many wings. Absolutely. And also, I guess, 
there is i'm sure you, you have an opinion on this there there is a media bias you kind of referenced it before there's not many media people who live in the southwest so they're kind of subconsciously biased towards the inner west and Balmain and the Leichhardt side of the the merger i guess and i guess that's the interesting thing from my perspective having spent a bit of time in the inner west uh, over the last few years the tigers they do feel like Leichhardt and Balmain's rugby league team. Yeah, yeah. those areas have gentrified. And, and like I said before, AFL is making significant inroads. But the Tigers still pull a crowd at, at the local pubs. And Leichhardt Oval is, you know, obviously very nostalgic. And I feel for the Magpies side of things, because I do sense there is a, a bit of a, a bias from people like myself, you know, people in the media you mentioned before, and I think it's kind of like unintentional, but it, it does come through. I'm just wondering what, what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I agree. And um, I mean, like, as you're saying that, I'm, you know, a friend who saw Rothfield driving a Maserati through the middle of the city <laughs> once. And I was thinking, like, wow, how could you say these things about Campbelltown when you're so disconnected? And it's also hard to separate your own frame of reference from it as well, but certainly the media bias it's coming out of the inner city, the reporting and the discussion. Mm. Um, this idea that no one wants to live at Campbelltown, you know, it's neglecting the viewpoints of people from Campbelltown. Mm, who that's right. Really love living there, who play their local football there, who maybe don't want to move or to commute up the M5 mm. of a morning or of an evening to go train at Concord or wherever. And that could be true of any region, obviously. But mm. I mean, yeah, it really comes from the perspective of the media class versus the people from Southwest Sydney who would embrace a rugby league club if it was there, I yeah. think. And I'm encouraged to hear you also sort of, uh, there's a little optimism there in terms of they're thinking that the West Tigers, despite all their troubles, you know, could work. And I mean, you know, a lot of people sort of say that they have no chance of working in the long term, but you can make an argument that they are working somehow. They probably shouldn't be, but I think they are. I mean, you know, the Roy Morgan research, they, they consistently show the Tigers as one of the most popular clubs in the league and... And when they have been competitive, let's say between 2005 and 2011, they were drawing huge support. So I kind of have the position that there's something there. It is a mishmash, but, you know, maybe it's a magnificent mishmash. And there is a thread, like you say, between uh, the Southwest that takes you all the way through to Leichhardt and Balmain. And I, I think if they ever get it right in the field, you know, I think we'll see that huge support sort of flourish. But, you know, once again, it's hard to tell. And, and I probably have that kind of inner West bias where I'm kind of living in the area and I have felt and ridden along uh, when, when times have been semi-good. So I can only imagine if, if times <laughs> yeah. are really good. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I've spoken to just a message, you know, the most optimistic man in the world, the biggest tiger on Twitter yeah. a few times about this sort of stuff. Yeah. And we're both sort of of the opinion that if it was honest about both sides of its history and embraced the Balmain side and the, the Magpie side and mm. the Campbelltown side, the Lidcombe side, the Leichhardt side, the Concord side, because they're very financially successful mm. and, you know, they've got eyes on them. They're just culturally unsuccessful because mm. they're running from their culture. Mm. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. So Max, uh, Walt, one of the main characters in the book, he becomes somewhat of a, a class warrior. He dabbles with communism at times, but struggles with other people's interpretations and expectations, and it never really gets off the ground. Um, it highlights, I guess, that class is a, an evolving beast. So how do you see rugby league, a traditionally working-class sport, closely tied with the labour movement historically? How do you see its relationship with class evolving? I mean, uh, the once unbreakable bond between labour politics and the working class is you know, fractured, smashed. Uh, could the same thing happen for rugby league? And 
And what would happen to the fabric of the game if that were to eventuate? Is it really rugby league if it's not a working class sport? For me, so much of my working class identity, even though I'm, you know, middle class now, Mm. is expressed through rugby league and my connection to, you know, second tier rugby league and and park football. Um, So I don't think that can change. But it's also, it's very difficult because the the one thing that makes rugby league unique is its history. Mm. And I don't think it's the sort of institution that can ever ignore that history in a in a real way because so much of the commentary and discussion about things that happen on the field come from this sort of you know player welfare angle or or player rights angle workers rights mm. angle whether we kind of see that or choose to read it that or not even down to the commentary on the rugby league world cup which is very complicated mm. but at least the stated reason for a lot of the hesitance was welfare and not dumping you know largely semi-professional to amateur people in a you know potentially dangerous environment i think the rugby league is unique because it does at least vocalize those sorts of issues ahead of potential growth or some kind of Hmm. uh, magical world takeover which some elements of rugby league fandom sort of advocate for sure I think the game itself will always be rugby league. An institution can't ignore its history. And if it does try to, the, the more we financialise, the more you do see this like sense of lost, lost connections to mm. what the game's about, I suppose. And I don't think you can shake that. It, it will always be rugby league, no matter how much money it's making, I yeah. guess. So. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it kind of makes me think, obviously we call this show the Progressive Rugby League Podcast, and... Progressive Rugby League, I think you can see that in a few different ways. I had Steve Mascord on a couple of weeks ago, and, and he, it seems, sees Progressive Rugby League as rugby league progressing as a sport, sort of the, grow the game, rugby league moving from its position now to become a huge sport. And I can see that as well. And of course, you know, I'd love to see rugby league progress in that way as well. Other people might use the word progressive rugby league to talk about being that voice for the working class and being a vehicle for working class empowerment and and wanting to make sure that the working class, the lifeblood of the game are looked after and are still at the center of the game, no matter you know how far the game evolves and, and moves forward. So it's an interesting one uh, thinking about this as well, about how rugby league moves forward, progresses, you know, becomes bigger, becomes more accessible to more people around the world, but maintains its essence and never forgets where it came from and and the people and the elements of society that have made it work and who have made it work for them. Yeah, and I think there's this weird, there's obviously a disconnect there in political worldviews towards social views, towards views of how a sport should conduct itself and... Mm. I've always found it really interesting that um, people who want the game to grow think that it happens via having a, a team in every city and like a Mercedes sponsorship on the front rather than Steggles Chicken mm. sponsorship. Or, or, I mean, I've seen so many little barbs towards rugby league over the years online, whether it's, um, you know, like in the English game, it's like, oh, we have to move beyond a game that's trying to sell mushy peas to people in the north. Or mm. The rugby league is becoming a game that you, with some heinous comment like, slinging booze and gambling to Westies or something was like something that came out last week. And it's, there are more people than there are elites. There are more people who want to buy mushy peas than there are people who want to buy Mercedes. So, you know, high ticket sponsorship deals aren't necessarily a sign of a healthy sport or a sport that's reaching a lot of people. 
because as the bottom line's evolving doesn't mean you're becoming better. I guess it's the way you define better. And the you know, I, I agree with a lot of things that like Mass scored. I, re- I really enjoy that interview. I agree with a lot of things he said, and I disagree with a lot of things he said too. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there are so many ways of viewing this sport, yeah. and I, I definitely more of a traditionalist than you know my age yeah. sort of should show. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I mean, there definitely is a tension there, and I, I sense the frustration of people and I, I feel uncomfortable when I see those kinds of things that are kind of condescending about people who have kind of loved the game their whole lives and it makes me feel uncomfortable I, I do understand where people are coming from their frustrations they want to see the game flourish in the way that they want to see it and that's kind of how they communicate that frustration it's not something I'm kind of like an optimist I'd like to think that there's there's a way that we can thread down the middle that makes everyone happy but maybe I'm overly optimistic now, um, as I mentioned earlier, Max, the book starts with Tommy Radonikus in focus as Magpie's coach and living cultural icon. And towards the end of the book, the news reaches Walt and Helen that Tommy has passed away. This news hit the rugby league community pretty hard early this year. And in the book, it, it seems to hit Walt pretty hard. And he spends some time in the local pub that Tommy frequented as Magpie's coach and which became a kind of a meeting point for former players and old Magpie's fans. Now, Max, I imagine this part of the book was at least to some extent based on personal experience. So I'm curious, how did the, the passing of Tom Radonikus hit you, uh, the community, and, and I guess how did you deal with it? Yeah, it was, it was weird. It was a really weird time because um, I've had a lot of, like when I was quite young, a lot of really personal and close um, unexpected death around me, mm-hmm. which is kind of like over the years sort of steeled me to the point of like, uh, why would you be affected by celebrity death? I, mean, I had friends like crying when David Bowie died or, mm. you know, something like that would happen. I'd just be so bemused by it. But, um, yeah, the day Tommy Rodonikus died, I was at work and my co-worker Nick, who's a big South fan, kind of came around the desk and just sort of said, oh, I don't really know how to tell you and showed me the headline on the phone. And Wow. Yeah, I, I kind of lost it. Yeah. <laughs> I was really upset and it really affected me and I think it affected a lot of like Magpie supporters in particular, but um, rugby league supporters as well because he was an interesting figure as someone who really stood for a lot of those things that we feel whether we vocalise them or not as rugby league people or as working class people or as, yeah, as Westies or mm. that so few vocal elements of the rugby league community like to express anymore. Mm. If that makes sense. Yeah, so I I work with the West Magpies occasionally, at, and especially at, at the bar. I've been bartending, it would come over. Mm-hmm. And it was about three three days after he died, there was a quick rushed-in memorial sort of thing at the Ron Massey Cup game. Mm. And there were, I think there were about 300 or something. I'm not good at counting crowd figures, but yeah. all these people came down for the third grade game, bought all the beer, like we had to send someone up to the bottle shop because we were down to selling sour beers to <laughs> disgruntled rugby league fans from like southwest and central coast and our west and from in the city. Yeah, and it was just such an emotional day. It was like a personal wake. Yeah, right. Um, the reasons for that, I don't really... I guess it's just he's a real stand-in for a lot of people's family figure. He could be anyone's granddad, you know, or your uncle. It's- yeah, and he, he did have... Like, he, he was obviously a larrikin, I guess, and he was a, a big personality, but... He did have a, a great way of communicating and, and cutting through. I, I can't remember the quote, but it's something about making sure that working class people know that other people are not better than them and they think they're better than you. They're not. You're just as good as them. And that kind of thing sort of um, helped people sort of rise up around him and, and get involved, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And that's 
yeah, definitely something I really fed into the book via, you know, at first via like Sam, Walton Helen's dad. Mm. I needed him as like an artifact of the past sort of thing. But yeah, I kind of wanted to show that Walt picks that up and it is true and it's timeless. And yeah. um, that idea of, you know, the fibre year of people handing West players pieces of fibre because they meant so much to them. And, mm. you know, all these things just get treated as comedy. Yeah, it's really real connection. And yeah, it's, I mean, it's, I'm sure Tommy is in some way responsible for the chip on my shoulder that makes me want to like throw my computer off the desk when I see people like slamming rugby league or slamming Westies. Or, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, Max, we are fast running out of time. But before we finish up, you mentioned you've been getting involved with the Western Suburbs Club over the last little while, uh, including through bartending at local games. Why have you done that? I'm curious. Why have you taken that step to want to get involved with the club beyond being merely a you know, supporter? I mean, when I was writing the book, I, you know, I've always followed the sport, like the NRL, and go to Henson Park games and go to the Return to Lipkin games when they've had them, 2018, 2019. But, uh, yeah, writing the book by kind of like accentuating or exaggerating a lot of these aspects of my personality made me realise how much I need that connection to rugby league, particularly like a bit of a lost connection to the Magpies. Mm-hmm. And so it was really like I was bartending in this horrible inner west bar like a little small bar and wanted to get out at least a shift a week and saw that West had secured Lincoln Oval for the year and at 3am sent this long impassioned email to the <laughs> generic West Magpie <laughs> account and, you know, woke up in the morning mortified. Um, but, you know, a week later, Shannon Cavanaugh's one of the new football club members, replied with an email. It was like, Max, we have to meet up. We need bartenders we see how else can get involved and signed off with you can't stop the magpies like, <laughs> i just felt a little bit less insane for a moment yeah and I've since yeah since started to just sort of help out around the club where i can and by yeah him and and the gm leo yeah i mean that's why it's like a, trying to maintain a connection other than just couch fandom yeah you know, like i believe in yeah the game of rugby league more than anything yeah that's great that's that's great to hear well max uh we're out of time but thank you so much for taking the time to join the pod, our first novel on PRL Book Club, and it's absolutely superb. Uh, all the best to you, your magpies, and why not Rugby League in southwestern Sydney. Uh, Max Easton, thanks so much for joining the Progressive Rugby League podcast. Thanks so much, John. I'm sorry for all the rambling. <laughs> Progressive Rugby League. Well, we all need some more fiction in our lives. Not the fake news type of fiction. Got plenty of that. I mean, novels. So I heartily recommend that you get your mitts on a copy of this, The Magpie Wing. All right. Thanks as always, ladies and gentlemen. Until we next meet somewhere in a Rugby League Readers Festival Q&A. Rugby League hobby. And see ya.